Welcome to Ask Dr. Julie Hanks, a safe place for healing conversations that educate and empower you to prioritize your dreams, revolutionize your family, and personalize your faith. I'm your host, Dr. Julie Hanks, a psychotherapist and coach offering online courses and programs to help women all over the world heal themselves and their relationships. Join me here every week as I coach a listener through a specific challenge and empower them with tools to find healing. Welcome. Welcome back. It is frequently asked question time. So taking your questions that you submit through email or online and answering them on the podcast. Here we go. And I have Richie T with me. Hi, Richie. Hey there. Uh, Glad to be able to do this with you. We've got a lot of great questions this week. Uh, People have sent in some pretty amazing, you know, difficult, (laughs) helpful. uh, uh, (laughs) Let's just get to it. Okay. The first question is, is it possible my grief over infertility was compounded by the teaching I received as a child that my most important role was to be a mother? Would it be this bad if I had had other options presented? Was it compounded or made worse? Yes. Because when you when something is framed as your only reason for existence or your greatest your greatest role. right when you rank things like something above another contribution and then you can't reach the greatest yes that will compound grief and there was a second part right yeah so the second part is would it be this bad if i had had other options presented you would still have grief because even in broader society, motherhood tends to be idealized and people just assume, well, women are going to want to be or will be able to be mothers. So there's kind of this assumption there anyway. I think it's heightened by religious teachings that motherhood is the pinnacle of your existence. So there would still be grief. So you'd still have to process like, oh, this is something that I've I'm assuming this person who's asking the question wanted to have a child. There's the loss of that expectation of what my life would be like. And so just like a death, the death of expectations, you have to go through similar process to a death of a loved one. And there are five stages, and you can go through these in different order or weave in and out of them. So they're not just this linear thing. But it can help you to know where you are. There's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Those are the stages that you work through when you're grieving something that's really important. Reading kind of between the lines in this question, it almost seems like, too, that there's some level of resentment for having that placed on this individual and that they weren't able to achieve that. How do you deal with that after you've made it maybe through the grieving process? I think that's part of the grieving process. Mm. The grieving like, oh, I I learned some things that have made this journey even harder mm. than it already is. Like that's tragic and that's sad. And I think that's part of the grief. All right. The next question, this one is particularly for you, Julie. Oh, mm, yikes. Does your husband agree with everything that you post online? 
And if not, how do you work with conflicting viewpoints on topics that hold such importance in your life? So the answer to the first question is absolutely not. He does not agree with everything that I post online. And he actually doesn't know a lot of what I post online because he doesn't spend a lot of time online like I do. Mm -hmm. And he's not on social media. So I kind of do my thing and he does his thing. And then we come together and the things that we share, um, we have hard discussions. And sometimes I say, you know, this isn't really going anywhere or I don't feel like you're listening or he'll say, I don't feel like you're listening. And then we'll kind of end the conversation. Um, but we've had to practice a lot of differentiation of self, which is the ability to be a separate individual while remaining connected to loved ones. So we, as we've gotten older, we have become more and more different. We do not agree on politics, on a lot of issues regarding politics. We belong to the same faith tradition, but we see things very differently. So in some really important areas, we are on different pages and we can still remain connected and still be loving and still be respectful and still have fun together and still share a life together. And so um, it takes a lot of practice because it's really, it can be really scary when you diverge in certain important areas as a couple, you know, mm -hmm. but, but it doesn't have to mean disconnection. You know, so much within the, the culture when we're married, we're taught to be one. And I'm betting that that's where a lot of that confusion kind of comes about, right? One in purpose, yeah. one in political, one in viewpoint. Right, yep. right. And, and I view that as one in, like, commitment and growth together, right? Like, we have a commitment to each other. And one does not mean the same. It means coming together with common, like common purposes, right? Like we both want to be good people. We want to be good parents. We want to follow the Savior. We like we have a lot of things that are really important that do overlap where we come together. But if both people think exactly the same things and feel exactly the same things, then one of you is not being real in the relationship. Because that's just not how humans are. You know, speaking uh, of children, you brought those up just a second ago. How can I teach my children of the hardships of parenthood rather than romanticizing it or scaring them? I think be realistic. Talk about how rewarding it is and what is rewarding about seeing another human being unfold before your eyes. Like, what's cool about that? What do you love about that? And also, they're going to see the struggle, right? Part of this is painting parenthood as a part of life that's integrated into your life. It's not this separate thing that's going to be this magical experience. It's, it's part, like kids integrate into your life. And it's part of, of, you know, one experience that you can have on this human journey, but it's not the end all be all. And it's not the, the worst thing in the world. You can kind of paint and illuminate all sides of it. 
right? It's great and terrible. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's, it's way better than I could have imagined, way more joy, and it's way harder and so much more pain than I could have ever imagined. And it's, it's a valuable experience. And a huge part of that is because it has helped me to grow into a more loving, compassionate person, which is who I want to become. So I hope that answers the question. Uh, next question. Is lasting change possible or do people just tend to slip back into their old habits? Yes and yes. People tend to be like the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior and people can change. And the way you know that they've changed is their behavior changes. Hmm. Right? Like, yeah. So, you know, behavior speaks louder than just saying, oh, I've changed. I've really changed. Show me. How do you demonstrate that change? So I wish I had more information about what this specifically was referring to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my mind sort of muses that it's something where, you know, the, the partner has promised to change something and then in the path of trying to be or change it, you know, then maybe they've slipped up or had those occurrences where those old habits have come back and, and maybe rephrased, like, how, how long do you wait and sit for change to be possible? Or when do you say, uh, this person is not going to change? I think maybe that, maybe that's okay. interpreting this question differently, but. Yeah. So another part of this question is why do I want this person to change? Why is this important to me? Am I making this about me when it's not? Mm. Am I like, am I making a bigger deal about this than I need to? Right? Like, mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of an example of what might be like a specific well, I, I mean, I mean, a very kind of on the nose one is maybe some sort of an addiction, right? The person says, listen, I want to make myself, uh, you know, not, not do this particular addictive behavior anymore. And, you know, the supportive spouse is like, yes, I believe in you. Change is possible. All things are possible. And they yeah. start to show some change and then they slip up or they slip back. And, and, and I think yeah. that's, that's rough being a partner with someone with an addiction. But when, do, sure. you, when do you know, hey, uh, maybe this is, not something they're going to change or, you know, interact well, with that. Well, I think it depends on your expectations, right? Mm -hmm. Like having a substance addiction, it's very likely that relapse will happen, but it's change is also using less. Change is also going a long period of time without it, right? If you think change just means never struggling with this thing again, mm. then you'll probably be disappointed. Because that's often part of the process of, of healing is, you know, having, uh, what's the word? Relapse. There it is. And that can be part of people's journey. And so I think if you have realistic expectations, then I think, you know, you can avoid a lot of pain and disappointment. Uh, but if you are, in a relationship with someone who is not working on their substance abuse, for example, or misuse, you know, you have to really look at like, okay, is this the kind of life that I want to be living? Is this partner who I want to be with? Hmm. Uh, next question. 
How can I be an uplifting voice for good on modesty and the patriarchy and not sound angry and contentious about them? (laughs) I don't know, because people will take it as angry and contentious, even if you're not angry or contentious. Because, uh, like, I'm the least angry, contentious person, or one of the least angry and contentious people I know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'm perceived as, you hate men, and you you think women should walk around naked. And, you know, people kind of go to the extremes. So, um, I think always giving people the benefit of the doubt, like, they're coming from their perspective. and. And that's okay. Like, it, we don't have to think the same things. Um, so you can't control how other people view you. But I think you can present yourself in a an upfront and direct way without being demeaning or rude or aggressive. So that might, that might look like in a stake meeting for girls camp, when they're talking about a dress code, raising your hand and saying, I'm curious, do the boys for young men's camp have a dress code? And if not, why not? And what's the difference? Can we talk about this? Because I'm seeing a double standard, and, and that doesn't feel right to me. Ask, posing good questions is a, is a great way to highlight things. Or um, say you are a female uh, leader, young women's president, and your bishop is not supportive of something that you are wanting to do for your young women. Just saying, hey, bishop, like I, I know that this is your stewardship, and I've prayed about this, and I feel really strongly about this, and, and the young women are my stewardship. Please reconsider. Right. So like there are ways to push up against things without like just burning it all down. You know, this might be me stepping in it a little bit, but is there is there a time and a place to do these things? I've heard oftentimes like um, and this is sort of a, a side tangent, but like if you're being corrected in the office, you do those things, you know, one on one and not in a big group of people. Do you think that those types of things apply in in this sort of scenario, or is it when you get the chance you you speak up because you may not have another chance? It it really depends, and you can you can create other chances, right? You could uh, talk to the stake president about the modesty or the stake young women's president. You know, can we meet about this afterward? I have some questions, and and create another opportunity. Yeah. So it just depends, I guess. Is you have to kind of read the situation. But generally, if you're trying to correct someone, do that in private. Uh, The next question, how to overcome the fear, doubt, and imposter syndrome that stalls my fulfilling of personal goals, wishes, and dreams? From personal experience, you have to just do it anyway. Like, I feel like an imposter. I feel like I don't deserve this opportunity. I'm scared to death, and I'm going to write the book, Hmm. or I'm going to give the speech, or I'm going to start the business. For me, I just decided pretty early on that fear is a really bad reason to not do something or feeling not good enough. Like, I spent a lot of my time feeling not good enough as a 
young person, that that's not a good enough reason to, <laughs> to, to not do something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of it is recognizing that a lot of people feel that way when they're doing something new. They're scared. They feel like an imposter. And you just do it anyway. And I know that's easier said than done. But I think part of it is a commitment to growth. Like, I'm going to grow even though I'm terrified. So can I share a personal uh, experience? Yes. Or personal experiences, because it's happened multiple times. So before I put out anything new, like a book or um, an album, for those of you who don't know, I'm a performing songwriter too. I generally have a huge breakdown and I'm on the floor crying, saying, why do I do this to myself? Why, like, why do I have to put things out in the world? Why can't I just keep it to myself? And my husband says, because you want to make a difference in the world. And then he comforts me and I'm like, okay, yeah, you're right. Every time. And it's just like, okay, feel it, move through it, and then stand up and do it anyway. That's my best advice. Yeah. I I like to reflect back on something that you had said earlier, too, is that, you know, it depends on what you uh, deem success to be. You know, we think that we need to do this thing and successful is right out of the gate. I'm going to have a New York best-selling book or something like that. And maybe success is that you sat your butt in a chair and actually wrote something and put put something out. So (laughs) it's almost a reframe of of what we think is success or or not being an imposter. Yeah. And having realistic goals, kind of what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. My goal was to publish a book and I've published two so far and I'm working on my third. So like, I've more than succeeded my goal. So, you know, New York Times bestseller, it's like, well, that would be icing on the cake, but it's not the cake. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here we go. Uh, Next question. Where should my feeling of worth come from and how can I find it and feel it? I love that. A good friend of mine, Kathy Cope, says this great thing. She says, everyone on the planet is worth one point. There's nothing you can do to be worth more than one point or less than one point. So every human being has is worth one point. So once you kind of internalize that and accept it, then the next question is, so what do I want to do with my life? How do I want to spend my time on this planet? Because my worth is not in question. So often we live as if our worth is tied to our performance, our appearance, our behavior, our righteousness, and it's not. So unlinking our performance from our worth is so important. Now, this it's easier said than done, right? But but like I will tell myself when I start getting into that contingency-based self-worth of like, oh, well, I did well in this, I'm worth more. It's like, nope, one point. Or I failed in this. I'm like, nope, one point. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. I just you know, this book wasn't as great as I thought it would be or wasn't as well received or whatever, but one point still. And so I use that all the time to remind myself that human beings have worth because they exist. And if you come from a a religious point of view, which I know a lot of our listeners do, you are a child of heavenly parents. So. That's it. Like one yep. point. <laughs> drop, drop mic. Done. 
<laughs> All right, this next one. Even if I have a great day, I am exhausted and feel empty at the end of each day. What am I doing wrong? I've been to therapy and say the affirmations that she gave me, but it's not helping. Okay, so I would ask this person, when did that emptiness start? When's the earliest time that you felt the emptiness? Often we bring those kind of pervasive feelings with us from our childhood. So I would ask that, like, when's the first time you felt that emptiness? And depending on what they said, that would kind of dictate what I would say next. Uh, but I would suggest going back to your therapist and exploring when the earliest time is that you felt that and what was going on for you then, because there may be some leftovers from like leftover emotions from something else that you're carrying into your adult life or current life. How do I navigate my personal growth and still support my children? Well, I think a huge. I, just how that's framed is part of the problem. Mm -hmm. It's framed like, you know, like this or that. Like, can I do? And we're sent this message as, particularly as women, it's this or that. It's you. You take care of yourself, or you take care of others. When it's it's both. So, it gets back to ranking. Like, do I rank other people above me, or do I rank my my needs above others? You rank them equal, and now you have to figure out how to negotiate how to do both, right? One thing to keep in mind, and that's helped me in kind of figuring this out, is the recognition that I am modeling for my children how to be an adult. Am I modeling something that they would want to grow up and be like? Mm. Because I'm giving them the default model of what an adult is like and does and feels and says. And so that helps me and has helped a lot of women I work with. It's like you taking care of you is taking care of your kids because you're modeling that they can do that when they grow up. If, you, if you're neglecting yourself and only taking care of your children, then you're modeling self-neglect and they're going to think that that's normal. You know, so it's, it's putting your arms around all of it. You take care of you and you take care of them because those go together. They're not separate things. Last question. We're bringing it home. Are you ready for this Ooh, one? Here okay, I'm ready. How to raise children while participating in a religion. I'm so scared that they will resent me if they decide that my religion is not for them later in their life. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. Children need some kind of structure in order to grow up. You cannot raise your children without a culture. Culture is just like the way we do things. So if you're raising them in a religion, that's going to inform the way we do things. If you're raising them in another country, that informs the way you do things. If you raise them in a different religion than you're in. So there's always going to be some framework or there needs to be for growth and development. I think what's really cool about this question is that the parent is already recognizing ultimately the child gets to choose, 
right? Mm -hmm. The child ultimately will grow up and choose what they want. And there might be some resentment, like, why did you teach me that? Why do you, like, that's okay if your child resents you. Just own it and say, you know what? That's what I thought was best for you at the time based on the information that I had. And I support you in living your life. Walked out a little bit with children and and the ability and agency, you know, something we Mm -hmm. hear within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints quite a bit. Um, Like questions around like if they're to be baptized or, you know, um, young men into the priesthood or, you know, going to church, even going to church on Sunday. How do you navigate or encourage people to navigate if kids are like, nope, not going to do that versus the house rules of like, nope, this is what we do while you live here. Like, where's the, where's the balance and agency with those kind of things? Yeah, I, I think that that's an individual family decision based on your family's values. Some families value conformity very highly. Mm. Some people don't. And children, well, it's children and adults. We're never fully ready to make any decision because making the decision gets us ready for the decision, right? Like, should I marry this person? I don't know. Marry them and find out. (laughs) You can't, should I, am I ready to be a parent? Probably not, but you better get ready if you're pregnant, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, does that make sense? Uh Uh-huh. And I'm not trying to make light of this at all, but it's it's kind of true. We're never ready to make a decision, or we're rarely, I guess, never. I don't like never and always. So eight-year-olds, they're not equipped to make a decision. They have no idea what it means. They're doing, they're doing it because you think it's a good idea, you know, and that's why they go to school and that's why they do a lot of things, eat their vegetables. So, and I think that's okay. Like some people go, you know, they need to have a decision. Well, they they don't know what's in their best interest at eight. And so you kind of have to guide them. But I, I think one thing that we could do so much better as, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is teach our children younger how to think critically about things and how to tune in to their own inner knowing or the spirit or like what feels right to you and really honoring if something doesn't feel right. You know, it's, it's one thing to be like, I don't want to go to church. (laughs) It's another thing to go like, mom, this, this doesn't feel right to me. Like there are things here that don't like, those are different things, right? One's pushing against like with the expectation. One is like, a real sincere concern, you know? And so I think we could do better teaching kids to think about things, to take things seriously, and to tune in to what resonates as truth for them, because ultimately that's what they they need to navigate through life. And I think we could do a better job informing. For example, I had a friend who who had her eight-year-olds take all of the missionary discussions before they could be baptized. Hmm. You know, they're not going to find out like the parts of church history that are sketchy or what, you know, but at least like, okay, well, these are the general things I'm agreeing to like, okay, I can buy that, you know? So it's just, 
a little bit more informed than your average eight-year-old. So I thought that was kind of cool. But again, we're never going to be fully ready to make a decision or prepared to make a lifelong decision. I also think giving your kids permission to think different things is really important. Yeah. Like it's okay to say, you know what? I know you don't believe this. And we all go to sacrament meeting if you're living in this home until you're 18. And it's it's okay that you don't believe it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like you can negotiate. It's not just so black and white, like make them do everything or don't make them do anything. There's a lot of gray there that each parent has to navigate with each individual child. Well, we made it through all of the questions. If you'd like to submit your question to our Frequently Asked Questions episodes, just email hello at drjuliehanks.com. And if you want to be on an episode like Talking With Me Live, you can also email hello at drjuliehanks.com. Hi, friends. Have you ever thought of working with me as your personal coach? Well, I have a couple of openings for women in Utah or virtually all across the globe, and I would love to work with you. I'm a licensed therapist, and I've been specializing in women's emotional health and relationships for nearly 30 years, and I've transitioned to doing personal coaching. I love it, and I'm excited to work with you. I help women making career and life decisions, communication training, moving on after children have moved out of the home or after divorce, finding your passion in life, or creating partnership in your marriage and family. I also work a lot with faith transitions and mixed faith marriages. I'm confident that I can help you create the life you love. I can't wait to work with you. And you can use code 150OFF for $150 off priority coaching with me. Go to drjuliehanks.com slash coaching or email hello at drjuliehanks.com for more information. Again, that code is 150, so 150 off, O-F-F. thought, hey, I want to talk to Dr. Julie Hanks about this question. Well, now's your chance. I want to have you on my podcast. So email hello at drjuliehanks.com with your question and the reason why you want to be on the podcast. And we may just choose you for a free coaching session.